welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. In the mid-1920s, much of the world was in turmoil, unrest, seeing radical change and reorganization. World War I, the so-called war to end all wars. Let me see how well that has gone about. But World War I had ended in 1918. You had peace treaties that were signed. One of the most famous of these treaties was the Treaty of Versailles. Many of the old global boundary lines were being redrawn. New nation states were claiming to establish order in the midst of the wreckage. And yet, much of Europe found itself trying to rebuild amidst the ashes that this great war had left. Many found themselves in poverty, facing unemployment and uncertainty. In the Middle East, the Arab world was experiencing growing tensions with disputing ideologies and tribes after the fall of a more centralized rule under the caliphate and the demise of the Ottoman Empire. USA was not faring as bad. There was an economic boom, but that doesn't mean that there was not turmoil and unrest that was occurring within America as there were labor wars in places such as the hills of West Virginia and growing racial tensions lynchings, and rise of race-based hate groups. In the East, China was moving towards a civil war as tensions between the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party increased as both of them were seeking to establish a unified, more centralized government to bring together and prosper their massive lands and people. And in the midst of this turmoil, modernity had already taken hold. Industrialization was changing the landscape and the economics of much of modern society. And old secular institutions such as monarchies or sacred institutions such as the church and religion were becoming suspect in many parts of the world. And as the late 19th century atheist German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche foretold and feared that with the death of God and in his writing that 
mainly represented the idea of the decrease of prominence of Christian faith in the church within society, that with the death of God, the church would be replaced by the state. And so in the midst of this upheaval and turmoil and change and uncertainty, you saw the rise to power, the fascist dictator Mussolini in Italy. He had the Bolshevik Revolution, and then Stalin take dictatorial helm of the new communist Russia. Fascism was on the rise in Germany, where the people were primed to elect a Hitler to reestablish Germany as a great and powerful nation following the humiliation of their loss in World War I. In Spain, there was a military coup in which a military dictatorship was established which would eventually lead to a civil war and the taking of power by the fascist dictator Francisco Franco. As much of the world was in chaos and trying to rebuild, it seemed that many were clamoring for modern princes or grand ideologies to lay hold of to pledge their allegiance to in order to find a semblance of hope and peace and security in the midst of such tumultuous times. And it's in this context that the relatively new feast day of Christ the King was established. In the mid-1920s, you had... Roughly 340 influential church leaders, theologians, bishops, even cardinals, petitioned Pope Pius XI to declare a new feast day called Christ the King in order to remind the Christian world that Christ is our ultimate king and his kingdom has no boundaries. And so in 1925, Pope Pius XI obliged and establish the newest feast day in the Christian calendar. It was originally established before All Saints Day, but then was quickly moved to the last Sunday before Advent. To have a place as the apex of ordinary time. And if you understand the way the church calendar works, is it is every year following the life, reign, and ministry of Jesus. And so our Christian year does not begin January 1st. It begins with the first day of Advent. As we begin to look for the coming of the Christ. And then you go and you follow through different events in the early life of Christ until we get to Lent as we prepare for the Passion. And then we have, we have the, the Resurrection Sunday. And then we have Pentecost. And we follow through. But at the very end of the Christian calendar, right before we get back into Advent, they put Christ the King to be reminded that all of that, that the entire circle of the life and the work of Christ ultimately leads to Him seated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it also is a reminder as you enter into Advent that Advent is not just looking back 
to the awaiting of the promised coming Christ. But Advent for us is also awaiting the promised second Advent, the return of Christ as King. And I just want to make a quick note that as Anglicans, we are Protestant. Which means just because Rome dictates something doesn't mean that we follow it. We have a long tradition of that. But Christ the King Sunday is quite biblical. And I think it was quite wise. And so, even though the Pope is the one who dictated it, we have adopted it and we follow it. But I think it's important because even though... We're not in the 1920s. And things are not necessarily as they were in the 1920s. But the 2020s have started with its own tensions. Its own uncertainties. Its own fears. So in many ways, I feel like the celebration of Christ the King is just as important today as it was in 1925. In our lectionary readings for Christ the King Sunday, they point to his kingdom, his rule, and how his kingdom came, his kingship came about. And so as we reflect on Christ the King, or Christ as King this Sunday, I want to just briefly look at aspects of these readings to understand what it means for Christ to be our king and what type of king he is. In our Old Testament reading, we have Jeremiah looking forward to this Christ king figure that is promised to come. We see that he begins this prophetic word Speaking woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of God's pasture. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. And now it's important to note, I'm pretty sure you already recognize this, is that whenever this word is being spoken of God to the shepherds of Israel, he's not speaking speaking to grizzled guys who hang out in fields and look over sheep. But actually, a lot of times what happens in our minds, because of our current context, we use shepherds to speak of, of, of pastors. Ministers or priests. And in, in the time of Israel, it did have religious overtones, but it also had political overtones because there was no separation of church and state. And when you look at the use of the term shepherds, it was regularly attributed to kings and political rulers within Israel. And so this was not just God speaking to those who are, are priests within Israel. He is speaking to all of those who, who rule, who are looked to for security and direction, for peace and security. And we see in this prophetic word that though corruption of power remains, was there, is there, and will continue to be there. God 
is not indifferent to the abuse of power. Then in verse 3, it says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. We see that this future redemptive work that God is going to do does not have boundary lines, does not follow the borders that were established by nations, but... It says that I will go into all lands. Other translations say all nations. And will gather for a people that are not, gather for himself a people that are not limited by any borders. And then in verse 5 and 6 it says the days are surely coming says the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We see in this language, this rising up, a branch from David, establishment of Israel, that it would sound like God is going to be raising up another political king to establish a particular nation state. Land And we don't know, there's no way to know, but I could assume that that's probably what Jeremiah had in mind and thought God was speaking. But there's this strange aspect at the end of this prophecy that this king that is from the line of David has a really odd name. His name will be the Lord is our righteousness. And now as Christians looking back and Christians from the first century on looked back and saw this, they realized that this righteous branch of David, this king that is being spoke of by Jeremiah, was Christ himself. For he is the Lord and he is our righteousness. And so Jeremiah, during his own tumultuous times in which there was the great threat of Assyria, that had just been overthrown by Babylon. The remaining Jews were being taken captive to Babylon in their center of worship and identity. The temple had been destroyed. And in the midst of this, God gives Jeremiah these prophetic words, assuring the people that he is over their supposed shepherds, their princes and rulers. And he's calling them to hope in a king that will come, a king that is from the line of David, a king in which their righteousness will rest. And then in our epistle lessons and lesson in Colossians, we now have a reflection on the Christ king that had come. And if you notice, this is no less than what Jeremiah had anticipated. It is not less, but it is far grander and greater and more than I think Jeremiah could have ever imagined. When St. Paul reflects back by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon who this Christ King is and what he has done. In verse 13, it says that he 
which is Christ, has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That our redemption by this Christ King that was promised by Jeremiah is a redemption that draws us out of a dark and corrupt world and all of those allegiances and transfers us to a new kingdom. As I often like to say, that those who are Christians are ultimately monarchists. Citizens of a kingdom that is said will one day overthrow all powers, whether nations, ideologies, or anything else. Delivering us from the dominion of darkness, that his light will cast out the shadow that encompasses our world, bringing true peace, bringing true justice, bringing true hope. That this Christ King, in whose kingdom we belong, will finally and fully do what many princes and rulers throughout history have claimed that they would do. But this does not mean that we live in animosity, because St. Paul says we live in our current kingdoms and worlds, with endurance and patience and joy. Elsewhere, we are told to seek to live peaceably, to love all, and to work for the redemption of all. And yet we see that the king that we serve, the one who has redeemed us, is above all, and his rule has no boundaries or borders or limits. As Jeremiah had spoken. In 16 through 17, it says, For in him, which is Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the beginning of 20, he says, And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. The Christ as king is above all things. He owns all things. He created all things. He is above and over all rulers, all authorities, all powers. And the language within this, if you look into the Greek, is using language that speaks to both earthly, present, political, social types of rulers and powers, as well as the spiritual. And then he tears down the boundaries and the borders because he is reconciling all things throughout the entire of the earth. Borders not just between nation states, but borders that have separated us from the throne of heaven itself. He is quite a king. The righteous branch of David, the Lord, who is our righteousness, was not a mere political messiah. Some great and just earthly ruler establishing temporary international peace. He was the Lord of all creation. And he has made a way for peace and will finally and fully establish that peace throughout the earth. As we see in our gospel reading and the end of our epistle reading, he did so in a very unexpected manner. It says, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. 
by making peace through the blood of his cross. This term peace does not kind it does not just con- connote like a 60s hippie peace. A cessation of violence. The peace that Paul would have been speaking of as a Jew is the peace in Hebrew, which is shalom. Which carries the idea of not just the cessation of animosity and violence, but a wholeness and a completeness, a prosperity, a security, a uniting of all things in God. And this shalom was established, he says, by his blood. Not by a greater treaty of Versailles signed by pen, but by an unbreakable covenant sealed by his own blood. As we saw in the gospel lesson, Jesus was mocked as king of the Jews by military and people, ridiculed by rulers, because they could not comprehend how his humiliation and willingness to be nailed to the cross as a criminal to die was actually his greatest conquest. See, true peace that is spoken of, this reconciliation could not come by means common to man. The wars, the rise and fall of empires, Broken treaties, corrupt shepherds and princes, injustice and oppression, hate and prejudice, abuse of power, and bloody insurrections were mere symptoms of a greater issue. Jesus knew that if this underlying issue is not dealt with, there will never be peace. underlying issue is the issue of sin. A rebellion against God and his rightful rule as true king and Lord of all. And that's the power of the counterintuitive nature of the gospel is that it flips our concept of power by taking the fullness of sin. He takes our rebellion, the hate, all that comes with that, and he takes it upon himself. So that the punishment might be paid, that we might be declared righteous and reconciled back to God, that the animosity would be over. And in that, a reversal of what happened in the gospel. So peace Shalom will never come through princes, ideas of great philosophers, strategies of utopian idealists, tech giants, economists, or the growth of any earthly empire. Because none can touch on the true issue that is behind the destruction, the darkness, the brokenness of our world. True peace comes by way of the reconciliation of all things back to their creator and Lord. 
The reign of Christ is sovereign over all that exists. Through allegiance to Christ, the King, who achieved victory through his apparent defeat on the cross. So our celebration of Christ, the King, as we prepare to enter in Advent, is to be a reminder to us that our ultimate allegiance identity, our peace and security, is rooted in Christ and his kingdom in which by grace through faith we are now citizens. It's a reminder that our true hope is not in, a, in the appearance or advent of any modern-day earthly prince, guru, or genius, nor the establishment of any utopian, ideal, political system, or global peace treaty. But in the second advent of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, establishing his eternal kingdom of peace on earth as it is in heaven. And I will make a note because it might be misinterpreted a certain way. This does not mean that we as Christians must be apolitical or disinterested in the well-being of the nation in which we reside. Throughout scripture, it says that we are to honor the authorities and rulers to pray for them. But it also tells us that we are never to put our trust and hope in them. As Augustine argues in his massive work, The City of God, having our allegiance to Christ as king and our citizenship in the city of God or the kingdom of God actually enables us to be better citizens within our own nation. For we can seek its good, not blinded by hope, frantic fears and insecurities because our hope and security is so deeply tied to the nation we reside in or its rulers. So then we can seek the well-being of the place in which we reside. And so to close out, I'm going to finish by reading the ancient Jewish liturgical collect, at least I like to call it that, that was used in the establishment of the Feast of Christ the King from the Hebrews Book of Common Prayer, which was Psalms. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue.